Welcome to the inaugural episode of the CrossGen Life Podcast. I'm Dr. Rich Melheim, recording this on a hot and humid summer day, hidden away in a secret lakeside log cabin somewhere in southern Minnesota. In the episodes ahead, the CrossGen Life Podcast will bring you thought leaders and systems change pioneers, movers and shakers and systems breakers from across the church and society, working to connect the wisdom of the elder and the wonder of the child in the same sacred space each week. Today's episode is part one of a six-part series. The topic is Disruptive Change and the Exodus Today. It features Dr. David Lowe's, founder of WorkingPreacher.org, former seminary president at Lutheran School of Theology at Philadelphia, and currently senior pastor at Mount Olivet Lutheran Church in Minneapolis. David's talk was recorded live at a recent CrossGen Life conference in Estes Park, Colorado. You can find more about our upcoming October 2018 conference at crossgenconference.com. Here's part one with Dr. David Lowe's. I am really, really delighted to be here. I've had for a while my own kind of sets of convictions. I think a lot of us, one of the things we share is the sense of, on the one hand, a deep, profound love for the church and the church that has nurtured us in the faith and the church that has formed our faith. And yet at the same time, this conviction that things have to change or the emerging generation is far less likely to have that same experience that we have had. Um, and so sometimes that puts us in kind of a peculiar position because we love this tradition and it worked for us. And yet at the same time, we sense that somehow it's, it's not working for the generation that's coming. And when I say not working, I want to be really clear. I don't mean this as criticism for the things that our pastors did or that we have been trained to do or our congregations did or the way it fed us, um, but rather to recognize that that whole way of being church the population for whom that works best seems to be shrinking. And the population for whom it does not seem to be working nearly as well seems to only be growing. And that's the invitation um, to pay attention to what's going on with this emerging generation and think about how to share our faith. And so when I, uh, I also kind of had heard uh, of Rich's work at a distance or had seen bits and pieces and when we kind of got thrown together for this uh, Mission District Assembly, it was really a joy to kind of meet a kindred spirit, and not only a kindred spirit, but to be introduced to a movement uh, in the church. And I, my other deep conviction is that that change happens uh, from the outside and it's pulled in, uh, that we're often so invested in the patterns and things that have worked, it's difficult to change from the center out. And so to think of yourself as a movement coming alongside the church and that your experiments, which include your failures as well as your successes, really are a blessing to the larger church. So I'm grateful to be here for that reason. Um, I also want to invite us over the next couple days to be willing to play with Scripture. Uh, and I use that word intentionally because I think a lot of us were trained to revere Scripture and to respect Scripture and to read it and to study it and to try and get it right. Um, and we were, if you've spent any time in a seminary, you're probably scared to death of committing the sin of eisegesis. Um, and you were given all kinds of tools to make sure you never committed that sin. Um, and I just want to say, I think for me, as I've gotten older, the, the line between exegesis and eisegesis has gotten a lot more blurry. Um, and I think it, it intentionally needs to be blurred even more. 
So I want us to have some freedom and, and play with things because I think one of the challenges in our culture is that we tend, we've been taught that Scripture is like uh, this kind of um, divine or holy reference book. Uh, and it has answers, and they might be uh, historical answers or, or uh, doctrinal answers. Um, and the thing about uh, reference books, I mean, I, I want to be clear, I really respect reference books. I find dictionaries helpful, and uh, I don't know how I would have gotten through junior high if my parents hadn't invested in the 1960 edition of the of World Book um, Encyclopedia. It's a good thing I didn't know what plagiarism was. <laughs> Not saying I wouldn't have done it, I just would have felt guilty about it. <laughs> but I was blessed with ignorance. No, I have, I have all kinds of respect for reference books, um, but they don't often, they're not the kind of thing you go to read for delight or for joy. Um, actually, I say that, and I remember actually pulling encyclopedias off when I was a kid. I was just that geeky. Uh, and so was Jen Rome, I can tell. <laughs> um, but, but they don't, you don't fall into reference books. Um, the way you fall into stories. And they rarely change your life the way stories do. Uh, and stories are malleable. Stories are meant to be played with. So I want that to be our invitation. Um, and what we're going to spend some time playing with is really what is the foundational story of Israel. The story of Israel is rooted uh, primarily in Genesis, but in some ways even more so in the Exodus. And so that's the story we're going to be spinning out and playing with um, this evening. And we're going to kind of start with a sort of second take on the Exodus and then spend the rest of our time hitting some of the major pivot points and thinking about how that informs the way we think about faith formation uh, in our congregations today and particularly in, in a cross-generational way. Um, so, yeah, this is what I want to do. I want, I, I want one of our projects to be to reclaim Scripture uh, for our people and to move it away from that sense of divine reference book to what I would describe instead as, as living word. Um, and I have a, a picture. It's just the only slide I'm going to show um, this evening. It's a picture of a statue outside of a library uh, in Nova Scotia. And what I love about that picture... <laughs> yay! <laughs> That's never happened to me before. <laughs> It might have never happened to you before either. Um, so what I love about this picture, you know, the little girl with the book open, and do you see what's happened? The words have come off the page uh, and have just been taken up into the air and are surrounding her and catching her up into the story that she's reading. And what I love about that is that almost every single, not almost, every single one of us has had that experience where we've fallen into a story. Maybe it's the story of a book we're reading. Maybe it's uh, the story that a friend is telling us about their life. Maybe it's a film or a play. And when you're caught up in that story, time stops. Uh, and the reality that you're dealing with each and every day sort of fades for a few moments, and the reality of that story takes hold of you. And when you, when you close the book or the curtains come down or you leave the theater or your friend takes that deep sigh and the story's over and you leave, um, you don't really leave that story all the way behind. That story now has been kind of bleeding into what was your reality, and has, that reality has changed. The narrative that you've been caught up in has now bled into the narrative that you're living in the world. And that's really um, the power of stories. And I think it's something that we have come really close to losing uh, in our, uh, our faith traditions. 
Um, I like to say of Lutherans, I'll stick with my own tribe, although I think it's true of a number of the mainline traditions. I like to say Lutherans know about two and a half things about the Bible for sure. <laughs> the one thing uh, we know is that the Bible is really, really, really important. Right? We all know that. And the second thing we know is that most of us do not know the stories in the Bible very well. And the juxtaposition of those two things, the Bible's really, really important, and we don't know it very well, create a level of embarrassment, um, even shame, that keeps people from wanting to study Scripture. Um, adult, adult education theorists actually have a name for what happens in a lot of our congregations. I'll, I'll tell the story first and then give it the name. Every call that I've had to a congregation, at some point in the interview with the call committee, someone on the committee has said, Pastor, we just want you to know, this congregation loves Bible study, and we hope that you would like to offer them. And I would always be sort of thrilled because I love Bible study too. That's why I went to seminary. Um, and then I would get there, and I would offer my Bible studies at noon in the evening and on, on all different topics, and nobody would come. We're really the five people that always come would come, you know, our adult ed junkies. Um, and one of them was the guy on the call committee because, he, you know, he wasn't lying. He was just speaking for himself. Um, and it took me a while, but I realized. And, and what I realized that what was happening was it wasn't that our people don't like Scripture. Uh, it's that they feel incompetent in reading Scripture. And it's that level of embarrassment or shame that keeps them away. So the name that adult education theorists give this is the imposter syndrome. When you, the imposter syndrome, um, when you as an adult uh, are entering into a situation of new learning, your anxiety typically goes to the roof. Um, because adults like us have, have uh, created most of our identity out of those things in which we're competent. We've derived our identity from our areas of competence. Um, little kids aren't like this. It's one of the, the gifts of of having children in the community, they don't have a sense of being good at something or bad at something yet. They'll just try anything. And they're like that through about middle school or so. Um, and then as they move to high school, they begin to get more self-conscious and thinking about what they're good at. If they go to college, they choose a major. Um, and by the time you're an adult, you're very clear at what you're good at and what you're not. So uh, a friend of mine once told this story about his parish. He was offering uh, Bible studies, kind of the same situation, was having a hard time getting people to go. He was really working on this one farmer in his congregation to come to Bible study. And finally, the farmer had kind of had it. He said, look, Pastor, there are two things you will never get me to do. Dance with my wife in public or go to a Bible study. Because <laughs> those were the two things he knew he was not good at, and he wasn't about to make a fool of himself uh, in public. So it might be different for you. It might be something else that you wouldn't want to try new. But for a lot of folks, that's Bible study. Um, and I think this, this half thing they know, so the two things, they know the Bible is really important. Second, they know they don't know it very well. That creates a real tension, embarrassment, shame. The half thing they know is that there is this way of reading the Bible out there that takes it so seriously uh, that it reads it very literally, right? That almost all of our folks, all of us have a friend or a sister-in-law or a coworker, you know, who if they don't have the bumper sticker, they could. The Bible said it. That I believe it. That settles it. And there's this kind of deathly seriousness about it um, that's intimidating. And we kind of know that's not for us, reading it literally, but we don't know an alternative. And I think this, this sense of Scripture is story to play with, a uh, story that you can fall into, story that can change your life. As living word 
is that alternative for us? Uh, and so that's what I want us to kind of explore uh, in the next couple of days, to move from the sense of Bible as divine reference book to more Bible as a collection of stories, um, a collection of stories that each of them makes a confession about what it looks like when God gets involved in your life. Because right? the thing is about Bible study, I can actually understand why our folks are intimidated by Bible study beyond their own awareness of what they don't know. The Bible, it's easy to forget when you've been reading it for a while, but the Bible's kind of a weird book. Um, and it's kind of hard to read in a lot of ways. It's not a book like most of the other books we read. It was written uh, centuries, uh, millennia ago in cultures that are very different from ours with hugely different assumptions about uh, the relationship between men and women, between adults and children, with all kinds of kind of very odd assumptions. It's written itself over a span of hundreds of years in different languages. Uh, it's filled with all kinds of different genres. So there's some narrative, like the Gospels, one of the reasons we love to preach the Gospels is their stories, but there's also histories, and there's legal codes, and there's poetry, and there's wisdom sayings, and then there's love poetry, all different, and it just can be kind of overwhelming. Um, and so I get why it's challenging, but the one thing that holds all those different kinds of writing together is that the author of each piece of scripture, be it a poem or legal code or a genealogy or a narrative, the author of every part of scripture was so caught up in an experience of being gripped by the living God, he or she had to tell someone. Right? That's what holds all of this together. Each person that contributed to Scripture was caught up in an experience of the living God and was so gripped by what that was like, he or she had to tell. And they told in whatever way was familiar to them. If they were a priest, they wrote a priestly code. If they were a historian, they wrote a history. Um, they, if they were a poet, they shared poetry. But all of that was to, was to tell someone else what it was like to see God in one's experience. So if we can move from derived reference book to collection of stories, which themselves are confessions of what it looks like to see God, in a sense, to think of Scripture as a collection of the, of the past sightings of God's activity in the world that can help us see God's activity in our own lives today. And so what we're invited to do is our reading and telling of scriptural stories is to begin to pay attention to patterns of what it looks like when God shows up and then to be able to recognize God's activity in our own lives. Often they will not look the same, but they may look really similar. Um, so a couple years ago I was uh, teaching at one of our Lutheran camps uh, in Colorado, uh, Rainbow Trail. And, uh, and actually, we weren't at Rainbow Trail. We were moved because uh, forest fires had kind of scorched that part of the state. Uh, and there was a fire that had come across the territory where, where Rainbow Trail was. Um, and it, uh, it kind of arced its way around the perimeter. Eighty percent of the perimeter of the camp was burned, but nothing in the camp itself. Now, that is not the same as hearing the voice of the living God speak to you out of a bush that's burning but not consumed. It's not the same, I grant that. But it's similar. And knowing one story, what it's like to detect God's presence in fire, helps you make sense of another experience. Odds are, none of us here will have the delight of leading our community down to a river or lake and parting the waters and walking across in dry land. Although if you do, take a picture. 
Because <laughs> that would be really cool. <laughs> but odds are we won't experience that, what it's like to carry people, walk people through the parted waters. But right now, as we're gathering, there are folks uh, in Iowa who are dealing with floods. Um, and, and other parts of the country, too, whether it's... Uh, rain or storm or hurricane, many of us will experience what it's like to be overwhelmed by water and have the community of faith come together and somehow find a way through. It's not the same story, but knowing one helps you recognize the presence of God in the other. So our, our task then is to think about how do we set the living word free again and invite people uh, into these encounters with the living God by telling and retelling these stories. And the key for me uh, is to focus on, in fact, the power of story uh, and the way in which story has the capacity to just swallow us whole and then spit us out a little bit different uh, with a different sense of ourselves and our mission. And there are kind of four things that I want to kind of lift up this evening to think about story uh, and the power of story, how it is that stories work or, or what do they do when they work on us. Um, and the first thing is that stories... Uh, have this incredible ability to help us connect to each other. Stories uh, are ways in which we take all kinds of thoughts and feelings and beliefs and convictions and, and they allow us to make them concrete uh, and shareable. Um, when, when you were together in, around registration or at the breaks, um, I'm guessing you're regularly telling each other stories. Now when I say story, I don't mean always kind of epic. Um, you know, something that takes 200 pages or two hours in a film. Just like little stories, anecdotes, that we're constantly kind of catching up with each other and sharing our lives with each other in and through stories. Stories about what's going on in your parish or in your work or your family or a story you saw on the news or a story that you've read uh, or uh, seen in a film sometime. We're, we're narrating little bits of stories because they have this ability to kind of to be relatable. A few years ago... Um, all my uh, siblings were together. I'm the fourth of five kids. We're not often all together, but a couple years ago we were. And my older brother was trying to tell us about something that was going on at his work that was really kind of frustrating. And he was sort of narrating it and describing it and going on, and we just weren't getting it. And then he paused for a second. He said, do you remember that Seinfeld? And then he named an episode when we'd all seen it, because this is our era, right, Seinfeld. Uh, and we totally got it. Uh, and then we understood stories have that ability. How many of you have seen the film, um, um, oh, I hate when I blank, <laughs> based on the true story of Michael Orr, Blindside. Um, that scene where uh, they're sharing favorite bedtime stories, uh, and, uh, and, and just before that scene, the, so back up a little. The, the story is about uh, Michael Orr, uh, played for the Baltimore Ravens, now the Carolina Panthers, um, grew up as this big, talented, athletic, homeless African-American kid. And he's adopted into the family, this white, wealthy family who sends him to s private school and has a football team. And they all assume Michael's going to be a really talented player because he has the size, he has the ability. And they're assuming that because of his difficult background, there's some aggression he wants to get off on the field, that he's really going to mix it up. And when it comes to playing, he's absolutely not interested. Um, kind of always paying attention to other things that are going on around. And they can't figure it out. And then they're sharing bedtime stories. And they read uh, Ferdinand the Bull. Anyone read that to a child or have it read to you? Um, right, this, this 
little bowl grows into this huge bowl. All he's ever wanted to do is sit under the cork tree and smell the flowers. Uh, and nobody understands why he doesn't want to fight in the bull ring. And they're reading this story, and Leanne Tui, Sandra Bullock's character, has this insight. And she says, that's Michael. He's Ferdinand the bull. That's what stories do. Stories help us connect each other. Stories are the common currency with which we share our lives. I was really uh, struck as our kids uh, began to grow up how thirsty they were, how hungry they were for stories. They could never get enough. Anytime we were in, in the car or going anywhere for more than two minutes, Dad, tell us a story. Um, and it was any kind of story. I mean, they, they weren't, you know, they weren't critical. This is great. <laughs> They loved, uh, they loved stories about silly things they did when they were little. They loved stories about aunts and uncles and family. They loved stories about the crazy things we did when we were little. One of their favorite stories uh, was about when I was uh, eight or nine years old, uh, and my uh, sister, Jeannie, uh, seven years, eight years older than me at the time, still eight years older than me, <laughs> when I stopped to think about it, um, we were uh, living in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania at the time, and we were out at uh, Goods uh, Dairy Farm and ice cream. Uh, and it, the huge mown uh, field and this little uh, station or area you'd come over and get ice cream, and Jeannie and I were walking back across the grass to where we had a blanket, our family had a blanket spread out with our favorite ice creams. Mine at the time, I remember, was black raspberry. Uh, so a big uh, dish of black raspberry ice cream, walking with my sister, summer, one of those favorite summer evenings. Um, and then all of a sudden, out of the blue, for no reason I can understand or fathom, I took my ice cream and I stuffed it in my sister's face. <laughs> like, I do, I do not know why. Um, and I thought it was hysterical. So it's dripping off my sister's face. And this is back in the day, so this is probably early 70s. My sister has those cat eye glasses that were popular back then. So it's dripping down her forehead off the cat eye glasses down her face. And I'm like this face, I'm this eight-year-old just laughing, you know, so incredibly hard. That was the funniest thing I ever saw. And my dad sees what's going on. And he comes over, and um, my dad's now 88, retired, pastor his whole life long. A very pastoral, very caring, very sensitive man except when he's not. <laughs> so he sees what's going on. He takes him out of the arm, and he just spanks me. This was totally okay back then. Like, you know, it was just a, a different world. Spanks me, and I keep laughing <laughs> because it is so funny. And so my dad spanks me a second time, and all that laughter instantly turns to tears. My kids... Love that story, <laughs> right? And you know exactly why. Because they love hearing the story about the disciplinarian, the guy who's always disciplining them, getting a little of his own medicine. They like the idea that their dad was a little screwed up too. They like the idea that maybe if I did crazy, dumb things like that and turned out reasonably okay, <laughs> so will they. They love the story because stories connect us to one another. So that's the first thing. Second thing, Stories have this way, they help us communicate those things we most deeply believe in a way that facts um, really never can. Um, I think about the, the story, and I've heard this thing about stories. I've heard it's not true, 
and I don't care. <laughs> because it makes the point. So here's the story, and I've only recently read that maybe, they're not sure if this ever happened, but it's said that when Abraham Lincoln met Harriet Beecher Stowe, the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, he greeted Harriet Beecher Stowe by saying, so here's the little lady that wrote that big book that started this whole war. Now, what's interesting about that is whether or not it actually happened, there's something profoundly true about that statement. Because uh, Northerners um, were galvanized to put their lives and their treasure and their fortunes at risk because of the incredible sympathy that Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin elicited. It, it depicted the cruelty, the barbarism of, of slavery in a way that made it impossible for people to ignore. Now, Harriet Beecher Stowe's story is fictional. It tells a story. It's made-up characters. And yet it communicates a set of convictions uh, about things that are bigger than us in a way that, that mere facts never could. Um, so stories help us connect. They help communicate what we deeply believe. Third, they, they give us hope in a way also that facts just can never quite muster the strength of doing. That was part one in a six-part series on disruptive change and the exodus today. Thanks to Dr. David Lowe's of Mount Olivet Lutheran in Minneapolis. This talk was recorded live at a recent CrossGen Life conference in Estes Park, Colorado. If you'd like to attend a future CrossGen conference, including the one coming up in October, you can find out the latest information at crossgenconference.com. You can also find out more information about Faith5 at faith5.org and about the great CrossGen Life curriculum and resources at faithinc.com, F-A-I-T-H-I-N-K.com. I'm Dr. Rich for the CrossGen Life Podcast, reminding you that in CrossGen Life, every age has gifts we need and every age has needs we get. <laughs>